You are listening to To The Top Talk with Jamie Arrington. Thank you, Jamesy. And Jason Bailey. Bump is uh, pretty good. But the reality is... They don't know, man! I've been looking forward to To The Top Talk. You know, I have that with myself every night. Every day, anything we do is Southern Miss To The Top. What's going on? What's happening? How you guys doing? Welcome to To The Top Talk. We're going to take it in a different direction on this special bonus extra episode from the archives. Uh, there is a we've got no game this weekend because of COVID. I hope everybody's having a happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Happy Thanksgiving to you, you, all your family. Uh, hope it's a good one. Hope everybody stays safe. But there is a fight this weekend. It's an exhibition fight, so I don't know how much you can put into that. But Mike Tyson former heavyweight champion of the world, and Roy Jones Jr., former uh, middleweight, junior middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight champion of the world. They are going to be squaring off in an eight-round exhibition match this Saturday night on pay-per-view. The the traditional pay-per-view outlets, I believe it is $49.99 for the fight. It starts at 9 p.m. Eastern time, so that would be 8 p.m. Central. Those fights usually come around to taking place sometime between 10 and 11 on those pay-per-view cards. Uh, That's me just guessing here because I really don't know how they're going to do this. But I wanted to break this interview back out. So I've been a boxing fan for a long time, and for a period of time, probably from when I graduated college until I started doing stand-up, I was kind of involved in boxing in different capacities. I judged fights. I I judge. I said judge fights. I judged a Butterbean fight. I judged a Tanya Harding fight. I judged one night of fights. <laughs> I trained at the Pearl Boxing Club in Jackson. I was a hanger on in a lot of ways. One of my best friends was a boxing writer, so I would go with him to cover the fights. I wrote a few articles. Um, I wrote an article on Mayweather and Pacquiao way before it happened that got a lot of run internationally, so that was pretty cool. But um, I was involved in different things. I acted as a photographer at times. I would, you know, keep scorecard things like that for for the different for the various publications that Brad was working for. So uh, I got to meet both Mike and Roy a couple of times. Got to hang out with both of them. Um, so and I, I was always a big fan of both of them. Mike, you know, you, you, if you grew up when I grew up, you kind of everybody was a fan of Mike Tyson and Roy probably. One of my most favorite athletes of all time, somebody being from the Gulf Coast region and able to do what he was able to do. Um, it was really a treat to get get to watch Roy um, in his prime. But uh, like I said, I met both these guys. I met Mike when I was working for the now Arizona Coyotes. We had a lacrosse team called the Arizona Sting. And Mike lived in Paradise Valley, which is um, you know kind of in the Phoenix area. And he knew the team president, and the team president asked him to come out and do a ball drop, kind of like a first pit, ceremonial first pitch, but for a lacrosse. And so Mike came up to the arena, and I knew he was going to be there. So the site that Brad was working for at the time, it was a site called Boxing Talk. And um, so I, I emailed the site publisher that morning. His name was Greg Leon, and I, and I knew Greg was good friends with Mike. So I, I sent him a message and I said, hey, I'm going to see you know, Mike Tyson tonight. Is there anything you want me to tell him? Well, Mike gave him the nickname The Minister, The Minister of Information, because he always had the the boxing info. And this was kind of, kind of when 
the internet was on the verge of kind of breaking out and all these, you know, pub, you know, you could make your own website and you could kind of build your own following, your own blog or your own podcast, so to speak. And so Greg told me, he said, tell him the minister sends his regards. So that night, uh, when Mike was just sitting there in a locker room by himself, it was probably an hour and a half before he was supposed to go out. And I just kind of popped in and said, hey. And I said, hey, Mike, the minister gives his regards. And Mike stood up and he's like, ah, and he turned and he gave me a hug. And we sat there. We sat there on a uh, a table there in the locker room just shooting the bull for about an hour, just talking boxing, different people we knew. And Mike genuinely one of the nicest uh, sweetest celebrities I've ever met. And I really just had an absolute blast getting to hang out with him that night and getting to talk and all this, that, and the other. So his manager comes in the room, like towards the end there. And Mike's like, hey, this is my boy, Jamie, he knows G. Leon. And the manager goes, well, let's call. Let's call him and, and make sure. Just kind of joking. And Mike kind of turned. He was like, yeah, if you if you don't know G, I'm going to throw you in that bucket of ice water over there. I was like, oh, my God. So he calls Greg Leon. And what does Greg do? Acts like he doesn't know me. Throws me under the bus. <laughs> but he left me off the hook. And uh, I got a picture of Mike. Mike gave me a hug, said, God bless you. And I was on my way. Never saw him again. But it was, uh, you know, one of those nights I'll never forget. And just a, an absolute treat to get to meet Mike and hang out with him. Um, got to hang out with Roy a few times. I met Roy a few times at either fights he was commentating or at fights he was fighting in. Uh, sat with him at fights in Hattiesburg one time, at the time when Deontay Wilder fought in Hattiesburg. This is probably about, what, 10, 11 years ago. Um, but, like, it was, and that was, you know, that was, Roy was, is one of my favorites, so that was really cool. So when I started doing To the Top Talk back in 2016, I kind of wanted to do another sports podcast. And obviously, that podcast didn't stick. I kind of got overwhelmed trying to do two podcasts in one week. But I reached out and was able to get Roy to be my first guest on my other podcast, airing it out. And I have this interview sitting there. It's not out right now. So I was like, I want to re-release it You know, with this fight coming out. If you're a Southern Miss fan, you don't want to listen. You don't have to. You've got that this week's episode. You, there's plenty you can could find to do. But for those that are interested, um, this was really special to me. This is the first time that I've, I've done an interview where I went in. I edited everything. And Roy was like eating when we were doing this interview. So I went in and edited out like smacks and things like that. But uh, this is this is something I'm going to treasure for a long time, just having this interview. I just wanted to share it with you guys while, uh, you know, building up to the fight this weekend. So, again, hope you all have a, an amazing Thanksgiving and uh, I hope you enjoy. Here is my interview with Roy Jones, Jr. When you introduce my guest today, there's only one way to do it, and still, Roy Jones Jr. How's it going today, Roy? Going good. How you doing, my brother? Doing good. Good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. First off, we can't we can't get started without talking about what's happened recently. What did Muhammad Ali mean to you? Well, he meant the world to me. He meant next to right up under our heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. He was been third on my list as the best thing ever happened to me in my life. Because first thing that happened to me was I met my, and my daddy was my idol, my father. 
my father introduced me to who Muhammad Ali was. So I was idolizing my father to idolize Muhammad Ali. And then I was met to find out who God was and who Jesus Christ was. That took me to the top. So how I got there, I got there. But by way of the whole thing started with me knowing who Muhammad Ali was, and it just bloomed from there. So my whole life blossomed through my knowing who Muhammad Ali was. And though you know, the Muslims don't necessarily uh, go to Jesus Christ route, so that's why the Muslims are not Christian, they still believe in our God who created everything, who created all and who was the biggest and the judge of all things. So it's like when you know that, um, a person that believes in God so much that he'll stand up against his own country, not to go to war against another country because he feels like that country is getting no harm to him and he shouldn't be going, that's said a pretty a pretty lot. So um that right there gave me the notion that don't judge people by their religion, judge them by how they react and the the fact that they believe in and accept God in their hearts. And their heart is of of God, then she doing the brother of God just like we do anyway. So he was the biggest, the most impactful person in my life. And as he was with a lot of people, you know, and I think he kind of transcended, like you said, he transcended boxing and religion and kind of opened a lot of people's eyes to, you know, we're all the same. And when he opened his own eyes to that, you mean, because at first the Muslim had him think it was just black people thing and was more of a black thing. Then when he went to Islam, he realized that the nation of Islam was composed of all types of people. Wasn't just black people, wasn't just white people, was all types of people. So that's when he learned the difference. And that it wasn't a race thing, and it wasn't about a race uh, situation. It was more about people loving one another, just like we do as, as Christians, and they, they do as Catholics. You know, they do as Protestants. Just we all got to find a neutral ground of what it is we love and what we believe in, or how our role goes to God, and that's what it is. I remember seeing old news footage of you, like way back in the day, in the ring with Ali. What was it like the first time you met Muhammad? Man, it was like a dream come true. You know, of all the people I wanted to meet in my life, he would probably be the first one as a human being. So, as a human being, he was the first and the most important person that I would have wanted to meet. When I finally met him, I was like, oh, you know, I was in awe. I was shocked. And when he got in the ring with me, he shot me in the ring. He got in the ring and he got in front of me before I could get out in front of him. I was like, wow. I was here. He's supposed to be through with boxing and he still comes out here and gets ahead of me right away. Incredible, you know? And you know, I thought about it, I said, you know, don't be surprised because that's what you learned it from. But it took me back for a minute, you know? Oh, absolutely. You, as you know now, you never kind of old dog out, man. No, sir. So so when did you start boxing? When I was 10 years old. I saw him fighting Joe Frazier in 74, I think, when I was about five. And I realized right away that he was beating Joe Frazier, not with his skills, not with his size, not with his strength. But with his speed and with his mind, and that intrigued me more so than anything. What did you love about competing in the sport? Well, just the fact that that was a sport that you could be a big agitator, or you could aggravate people, get on their nerves, get them mad enough to want to kill you, and laugh at them and take advantage of them while they're trying to kill you. So it was like that was something I used to love to do naturally anyway as a kid. But when I realized that you could do that in boxing, I knew right here. That's what I need to be. What was it like having Roy Jones Sr. as a father? Oh, I was rough. Roy Jones Sr. was a tough guy. I was tough love. He loves you, but he gave you everything you had, but it came with a price and not a cost, you know? And if you wouldn't have paid that cost, then you can get it. But that cost was not an easy cost. 
it was a cost that would probably lead more people to suicide because of how hard and how hectic it was. But it was something that I had to go through to prepare me for the life ahead. And so I thank God that I was able to go through it. And I, I only got through it by the grace of God, but I did make it. You had a very uh, accomplished amateur career, and then you got to represent the United States in the Olympics in Seoul, Korea. What was going through your mind when you were robbed of that gold medal? Well, well I was kind of shocked that all these years I sacrificed, which was nine years of my time, and I sacrificed nine years to come here and represent my country and to win a gold medal for my country and to get all the way over here in Seoul, Korea, and now they're going to rob me of it. But no way possible. I was like, no way they're going to do it. That's ridiculous on a world level, not a national level, on a world level. They're going to rob a 19-year-old kid of a gold medal that he so rightfully deserved, deserved that he sacrificed years of his life to get, and they just want to take it from me. And so I was just in awe. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it took you about 20 years to get over your fear of fighting overseas after that. Of course it did. Well, you turned pro in 1989. You had your pro- first professional fight in your hometown of Pensacola, Florida. What does Pensacola and the rest of the Gulf Coast mean to you? Well, it's my home. It's my second home. Um, the rest of the Gulf Coast is like my second home. Pensacola is my first home. Being the means that, first of all, my whole amateur career has been majority on the West Coast. I mean, on the Gulf Coast. So everybody, everywhere I went, I used to go to Biloxi and Gulf Ford and Bali Bachelor, Bali Bachelor, Bali Bachelor, and um, they're on Gulf Coast. There's you go Mobile, Alabama, Taylor, Alabama, McIntosh, Alabama, you know, Mississippi, everywhere, Ocean Springs. They're on Gulf Coast. The majority of my amateur boxing was it took place there. Um, I have 135 amateur fights, probably uh, close to 100 of them took place on the Gulf Coast. <laughs> it's a different scene down on the Gulf Coast when it comes to amateur oh, boxing. Yeah. Oh yeah, you just don't have the competition sometimes because of. I mean, you you might have had more of it when you were coming up, but now you know if you want competition in amateur fighting, you got to go to the East Coast, the West Coast, the you know some of the Hispanic areas. You don't get as much of that down mm-hmm. here. No, but Lafcombe was way more. There was so many that the team Mobile, the PAL, the Power Team, you had to have a school bus to carry to carry all the gay kids around. That's how many kids they had. When I was a junior. You know, Olympic kid, they would have two kids representing every weight class. Well, I saw you fight. Two kids, not one. Two. Not, no, two. That's true. You're right. I saw mm-hmm. you fight a couple of times in Biloxi, and I know that, that any time you made an appearance in South Mississippi, I mean, the, the fans just went crazy. Like, they they love you down here. Oh, yeah. But that's why I was, that's why I was born and raised. That's why I was good at. Not born and raised. I mean, born and raised in boxing. Because that's where my... my um, my um my probably third fight was in Mobile, Alabama. My fifth or sixth fight was probably in in, in Mississippi, you know. So and that's where that's where most of my fight was at. I said out of a hundred, out of hundred thirty five amateur fights, a hundred of them were probably fought on the Gulf Coast. You won your first title in nineteen ninety three, your first world title when you defeated Bernard Hopkins. What did winning that title mean to you? Well, it was finally a mission to come because the whole reason you turn professional boxer is to become a world champion. You ain't aspiring to be a world champion. What reason are you trying to profile? Yeah, you might want to make money, but you don't really make money unless you become a world champion. So once I turned pro, I had to prove to the world that I was trying to find the best at the Olympics, like they said I was, that I deserved a gold medal, and that I was going, now that, going to become a professional world champion. And that meant a lot for me to do that. 
showmanship was always a big part of your game. I mean, I, I remember fights with James Tony and Glenn Kelly where you emulated moves from your Gamecocks. How important was it to put on a show for your fans? Very important because that's something I got from the greatest moment that I You're not going to do something spectacular and shock the world. You know, why should they look at you? Why should they, why should they give you, give, give you their attention if you're not going to give them something spectacular to look at? So it's like, if you, when I fought, if I want to shock the world, then what am I going to fight? Because anybody wants to fight, a fight can happen anywhere. You can watch a fight at, at, at the local bar. You can watch a fight anywhere. But you see something that's going to shock you. When you watch Roy Jones box, you got to see something shocking. When you watch Sugar Ray Muhammad Ali, Premier Whitaker, when you saw us box, we got to give you something that's going to shock you while I watch the box. You know, and, and, and stepping in the ring, it takes a lot out of you. But but I remember one time, I think it was when you fought Eric Lucas, you played in a semi-pro basketball game before the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, I fought, um, yeah, Eric Lucas, yeah, yeah, you're right, from Canada, you're right. Yeah, I played a pro game the day before, and I wanted to prove to you that boxers can do other things, too. It's not like just football players or just baseball players or somebody just can do, that That just could do two sports. Boxers, boxers could do two sports, too. Boxers were uh, dynamic, they had different dynamics, they could do other things, too. So that was my part for doing that. Multidimensional, we can do other things, too. I mean, you showed that you got the athletic ability. You could have done most anything had you gone into that field. Exactly. Well, you you moved up from, you know, middle to super middle to light heavyweight. You're undefeated. You fight Montel Griffin, and you get disqualified on a a late hit. How disappointing was that first loss, especially since you really weren't defeated? Well, it's very disappointing because you see what happened with Floyd Miller by keeping keeping the record clean. To take that clean record away from me took a lot away from me. Because had they not taken that record away from me, I'd have still fought hard to keep it undefeated, even if I came back and beat Tom the first time. But because you gave me a loss already, a second loss, I didn't want it, but a second loss really didn't mean quite as much because you already had been gave me a loss that I didn't deserve. So once again, just like at the Olympics, you know, if I you gave me a silver medal that I didn't deserve, now you gave me a loss that I didn't deserve. Only bad part about this was, only bad part about this was, you gave me a chance to come back and Abuse myself, and that's exactly what I did. You did it. I mean, you were like a man possessed in that fight. That was one of the most <laughs> dominating uh, hmm. performances of your career. I mean, and that was against a champion. That was against the light heavyweight champion of the world. And you went and just, I mean, you really just pushed him around the ring with your fist. I mean, that's the only way I could say it. I first time when I had just create bullet somebody. I was not known as a bullet. I just thought boxing so I could be a bullet. But because of the way he talked, after they gave him my title, it made me mad enough where I had to bully him. Well, that look on his face when he was on the canvas, you could tell he had been severely bullied. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I was thinking about the other fights in your career. Uh, I remember one fight, you were fighting Virgil Hill and Biloxi. And you didn't see this as much back then, but you see it all the time now. But you knocked him out mm-hmm. with a body shot. Do you think that you kind of started that craze, so to speak? I know I did, but people were shocked by it. So I gave people... But, uh, people start believing again that you could stop somebody with a body shot. But a little while people start believing that because they didn't see none of the top players doing it. And when I did it, it, made me, it reminded me that, hey, you can't stop people with body shot. Body shots are good, so not more people do it. I, I remember you talking a lot, you know, kind of when you you listened to interviews with you when you were coming up and you talked about how you, you never smoke or drank as a fighter. Nope. Why, why was that so important to you? 
Well, because I watched so many guys come up before me that fell victim to alcohol or fell victim, victim to tobacco or fell victim, victim to uh, drugs and other things. So with seeing that, it's probably that if you're going to be a professional boxer, that's something that you need to go. That's a problem that you don't need to go create for yourself because there are enough problems already we made. During that time, you know, kind of that uh, early 2000s time, I mean, you, you really just started churning through the opponents. I mean, they were the, the number one contenders, and you kind of coined the phrase, you know, I don't fight nobodies, I just make them look like nobody. Did you just feel exactly. you, you're dominant, you were so dominant during this time that, that the, the critics just kind of disrespected you by disrespecting the competition? Exactly. Exactly what happened. Because Eric Lucas, even after I fought him, went on to win the WBC Super title and kept it for about two or three years after I beat him. Uh, that's what I beat before I played a basketball game. He went on to capture the Super Bowl title, the WBC version, and kept it for two or three years. Incredible. No. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and there's so many of them like that. I mean, so many of the guys mm-hmm. that you beat, you know, former mm-hmm. future champions. Um, yep. Also, also in the early 2000s, uh, Bernard Hopkins defeated Felix, Felix Trinidad. There was all this chatter mm-hmm. about you two having a rematch. And and I, mm-hmm. I think I've heard your side of the story before, but but why didn't that fight happen back in two thousand and two? He had a deal with Don King. He wasn't a, he wasn't a uh, combo split that he was gonna get because he had to pay Don, and he felt like because of what he had to pay Don, it was gonna make him get uh, two less of a cut if I got sixty percent like I deserved, and he got forty. And Don took took twenty on how did he win with number twenty. So they don't understood why he didn't want to do it, but like I told him, it was a business. I was in trouble, not him. So we won, or we could have put it on the line. I would took a bet then. I said, the one get sick to lose, get four. I would take that bet, because that's who I am. And, and if that, I that, would, I would whip him again. <laughs> and you, you made a song about it, too. Mm-hmm. 60, 40, I would kick your ass. <laughs> I it, it get to get into that. I mean, I remember uh, early two thousands. One day I see you in in Mysticals video. Next thing I know, you got mm-hmm. uh, you got your own album out. How did you get into hip hop? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was into hip hop. Uh, I had a lot of fans in hip hop in the year. I told them that if I ever made it, I would try to come back and you know hip hop group from Pensacola to probably you know try to make it. And you know we as a group did make it. You know the first two of the guys called Ready PG. They got me into music. So. With that being said, we got a lot of clubs. We got a record. We got a uh, record. Got got on the top five all over the world. Uh, we did some really big records, so it was a great thing. I loved it. Hip hop is a way, another way of speaking to people through music instead of just going. And everybody want to listen to you at a press conference. Everybody want to listen to you at a speech that you're giving. But if you make hip hop music, they listen to that. Well, the second album too, uh, Body Body Head Bangers Volume One. I mean, yes, it, it, was a, it was a great album, but you had, I mean, Juvenile, Bun B, Lil Boozy, Mike Jones, Petey Pablo, Mystical. all on this album. Mystical, yeah. yeah. Everybody. Everybody on that album was dope to death, you hear me? I mean, people people didn't expect the album to be what it was. The album was true. You got to think about it. You got Bun B, Mike Jones. I mean, come on, man. You, you don't get no better, man. I mean, Petey Pablo... Mr. Magic, Juvenile, they don't get no better than that, no? No, no, sir. No, sir. We, and we actually, me and uh, our mutual friend Brad Cooney, we actually uh, spent some time with Mr. Magic at one of your fights, and it, it was really sad 
you know, he, he actually ended up uh, in a car accident right down the road from where I live. Mm-hmm. That was kind of very disappointing because, I mean, he was he was a legend in, in New Orleans. Yes, he was. Very disappointing. I was terrified when it happened. I was traumatized. Also during that time, around that same time, uh, you you kind of got into acting a little bit. I mean, I know you were in a couple of the Matrix mm-hmm. movies. Is, is that something yep. you is that something you pursued, or is that something that just fell in your lap? Fell in my lap, but I still would love to do it some more. I enjoyed it. I loved it a bit of it, and would love to do it some more. Also, you um you were the first fighter named to Team Jordan. I mean, what what did it mean to you to wear that Jordan logo? It meant everything about Jordan was the best at that time, you know. And to me, the best to ever do ever play basketball and to be represented by the best to ever do his sport made me feel like the best to be a man. So, I mean, it was a great situation. Uh, something that God blessed me with. I thank God for it because it was a wonderful situation for me. Um, I loved it. So you you move on from there, and at the, at the time, I mean, you'd, you'd won all the titles: middleweight, super middleweight, mm-hmm. light heavy, and you get the opportunity to fight for the heavyweight title. What what inspired well, you before that? Before that, though, I also was the first boxing match in Radio City Music Hall. And in that fight, I got the first rap group. Hey, keep it down. I got the first rap group that performing there, too, because Nothing Man and Red Man brought me to the ring. I said, keep it down. I'm on the phone. And I had Nothing Man and Red Man bring me out to the ring tonight. And that was completely the best ring entrance ever. And they didn't show it because HBO was literally of the content, but there was no real bad content on it, but they wouldn't listen to me and take my word for it, but that would have went down in history as the best ring entrance ever. And not only that, Whitney Houston sang America the Beautiful that night. So it's like, you could not have got a better night in boxing than that night. But the first time boxing ever been in Radio City Music Hall, and the first time rap ever been in Radio City Music Hall, I killed two birds with one stone. Who was, was that? Was that Lou Duvall or was that uh, David Telesco? Uh, David Telesco. There was a lot of bad blood with you guys that night. No, he just did a lot of talking. I don't care about you can talk all you want to. You still gonna take this whipping air, man? You that? When I be Hopkins, I had one hand. Yeah. When I be James Harden, I had a hand and a half. But at least it was my good hand, my left hand. It wasn't my power hand, so I knew I could outpunt both with my good hand because that's about my point hand. But against David Telesco, my point hand was hurt. So all I had was a right hand. I didn't have no left hand. My left hand was fractured. I went into the fight with a fractured hand and still beat him. And people don't know stuff like that. You know what I mean? No. No, they really don't. I the fight with a fractured hand. I jumped off a motorcycle at December 9th, and I fought there at Fractured my hand. And I jumped off a motorcycle in my yard on December 9th. The man told me to pull out the fight. Don't take it. But because it was a radio city new car, the first fight ever, I said no. God on the fight, I broke completely. Being frustrated enough to stop me. And that was some of the most gruesome pain I went through in my life, slapping him with my hand, being with my hand hurting the bad as it was. But I still did it, and I still won the fight. Yeah, you did. You sure did. Um, mm-hmm. What inspired you to take on the challenge of fighting for the heavyweight title? Well, first of all, it had been done in over 106 years. Um, I wanted something to shock the world. I want to do something spectacular. I mean, but no, I can broke the tire, broke, broke the record for most middleweight tire attention, which was cool, but we're not real middleweight throughout. Well, anybody in the division worried, but he did break the record with the number because 
he took on whoever was there, but it just wasn't in there, so there was no money fight there for him. But because he did do that, he did break a record. Well, I wanted to shock the world. I didn't want to break a record. I just wanted to shock the world. Nobody had won the heavyweight title that was middle middleweight right here with any heavyweight title in 106 years. Not to mention, nobody had ever turned pro at the middleweight 154 and went on to become heavyweight champion of the world. Nobody. So I'm like, wow. I do this, I accomplish two milestones. I be the first person over 106 years to win middleweight, main heavyweight, and heavyweight title. And I can add super middleweight, and I call it got super middleweight title. And I'll be the first person ever in the history of boxing to turn pro as a true middleweight and become heavyweight champion of the world. Wow. That's a lot to put on your plate. You put that down, now who can top that? I remember, too. I remember, you know, when you were fighting uh, at light heavy, I mean, there was a lot of people that said, you know, there's no way he moves up to heavyweight and his hands are just as fast. Yep. Exactly. Nobody thought that. So I went and got Maggie Shieldstone, somebody who had did it before, Mike Stink. Um, he agreed to help me out. We went to work. Six weeks later, we became heavyweight champion of the world. Was that, was that fight, was that victory over John Ruiz, was that the pinnacle of your career? Yes, it was. Because... The milestone. The first time ever a man turned professional as a junior middleweight and became heavyweight champion. Junior middleweight. I was a 50 pound gap. Turned pro at 154 and become heavyweight champion. That's 50 pounds. Talk about pound for pound. That's 50 pounds. So right. Take out turn. Take out turn. Turn pro at what? We 112 or 115? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So 154, 112, 154. That's what 40 pounds. Yeah, that'd be right. Right. And and two heavyweight, you're not looking at a I mean, you're fighting people that are, that could weigh any amount of weight heavier than well, you. Well, I I actually he was two twenty six. So I really went from uh, I really cut around from one fifty four to two twenty six to be honest with you, we two twenty six tonight. Talk about pound for pound, how much weight is that? That's too much math. Exactly, exactly. From 154 to 226. Come on, man. You beat fighter from 154 to 226. Who else besides maybe even hold up him has that big ring? I don't think he got that big ring. I don't. No, I don't think he does either. I don't think he does. No, no, I mean, no, he, fight, no. no not at all. No other fighter got that like, that big of a range when they dominated the fighter from. I dominated fighter from 154 to 226 pounds. Talk about pound for pound, the great Shirley Robinson didn't do that. Nobody did that. No, Nobody. And, and you Nobody. certainly deserve all the credit for you. You were definitely one of the best pound for pound. And and I, some anybody wants to dispute that, I mean, you just got to look at the facts. You got to look at the record. I mean, you Nobody can't be denied. Nobody has a bigger weight coverage than I had. Nobody. Nope. Not at all. No, nobody. Tech out, nobody. Now, it's more weight division. I'm on that because he was in the light weight. So the weight, the weight was close. So he went through more weight classes, yeah. But the the poundage, I got over a 50 pound guy. Let's add 154 to to 200. That is 46 pounds. Yeah, let's go add another 26 to that. That's 72 pounds, right? Uh, yeah, that's 72 yeah. pounds, right? That's yeah. Almost a 100 pound margin that I dominated. Almost a 72 pound margin that I dominated. Absolutely, absolutely. Were you disappointed that I mean I know you're 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 on top of the world at this point, and were you disappointed that you couldn't get 
more lucrative fights at heavyweight? I mean, I know you, you, you tried to fight Tyson, and he didn't want any part of it at that point. And that, and that was the really, only, only real lucrative fight there was when I had him call. And like, this is what I didn't want to do. What I didn't want to do is what Canelo just did. I didn't want to win the heavyweight title and say, I'm not a heavyweight. So I'm not a heavyweight, what the hell am I doing fighting heavyweight? So I want when they were trying to just for the history of the story back there, then what a, a mega event with Mike Tyson, why am I staying heavyweight? Because I'm not proclaiming to be a heavyweight, or I got to fight all heavyweights that come. I'm not proclaiming that I was a heavyweight. I wasn't. Because I was 199 at the most. I wasn't heavyweight. So, no, I'm not going to stay there because if I stay there, I can't see I'm not a heavyweight if I'm going to stay there and keep fighting heavyweights. You feel me? Oh, absolutely. Is it like? I'm fighting smaller ones. If I defend my title again, I am a heavyweight. Okay, I can't have one two title defense again and say, oh, I'm not a heavyweight. No, 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 no. You defend that title, you're a damn heavyweight. So I don't know you know my title because I don't want to fight another heavyweight. No. If I defend that title, I am a heavyweight. I'm a legitimate heavyweight. Now, if I become a heavyweight champ, I'm just saying I knew I could be a heavyweight champ. After the, after the, uh, the, the winning the heavyweight title, um, you took a move back down and wait to fight Antonio Tarver. Did that move back down take take a toll on you? Yeah, yeah, 36 years ago, it took a big toll on me. But guess what? I gritted it out and still recapped the heavyweight title that Bob Pitchell did because that's what I had to do in order to be the guy did what Bob Pitchell did at least. So I, I got it up and won that first fight because that's what that's what I had to do. And the second fight I should have took because I knew my body had took too much punishment. I should have either took off two, three years and waited. Well, I think it was about, my body took a gruesome beating coming back down from 200 to 175. Yeah, it, it kind of seemed like that. It kind of seemed like it really, I mean, you were really just worn out, you know, uh, getting towards the end of that right. first target. Right, right. And people ask me, if you do all those good years, yes, I do the same thing because that's what I wanted to do. That's why I haven't been done in so many years because it kills you doing it. But it's going to kill me. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to live till about me. I'm still going to do it because I got it done before I die. You hear me? Yeah, right, right. And and you kept and you you kept you moved down again. You moved down to 170 to fight Felix Trinidad. And I think mm-hmm. you, you were the first former heavyweight champ to successfully fight at that weight. That's exactly right. How difficult was that? That was highly difficult. Highly difficult. But I was so that I could, and this proved that I was not a legitimate heavyweight. I just had heavyweight skills. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you know, you're past this point. You're still, you're still up there where you're fighting the, the, you know, some of the great fighters. But, uh, you know, you weren't the same Roy at this point. You still were yeah. great, but you weren't the same Roy. How did you mentally prepare? I mean, how did you mentally deal with losing a fight when that's something you weren't necessarily accustomed to doing? Well, yeah, I understand that. You know, like nothing good comes easy. Everything good, everything big, everything historic comes with a fight. So it's like I. Muhammad Ali did a lot of things in boxing, but he ended up with Parkinson and he ended up with a lot of different situations because the higher you go, the bigger price you got to pay for it. You feel me? So it's like he was a chance to be a high you go, it's still a price to be paid for that. He went to a place of greatness that nobody had ever been before, but he also had to fight a gruesome disease afterwards because, you know, it's like we got to pay a price because of how high we go. So for me, I feel like losing those fights and not being able to give myself all that where I was, 
was a price and a sacrifice that I was going to make for doing what I did. But what I did was something that had never been done before. And that's why, because it almost killed a man to be able to dominate for a 75-pound range. You feel me? Oh, absolutely. To be dominant, to be dominant for a 75-pound range is almost going to kill me. See, Shirley Robinson almost had a stroke in the ring. He had to stop. He couldn't go on the more because at 175, he's out of gas. You understand where I'm coming from? So right, it's right. And people don't understand, so you got to know that. So it's like, it ain't just me. It almost killed me. I have to do something like that. That's why it only got, it had been done once. And that's why it had been 106 years since that one time it happened. So you have to understand that to come to something super heroic, you got to sacrifice something to get it. That's why it don't get done too often, you know? Oh, I mean, no doubt. Well, An amazing accomplishment. I mean, no, nobody's done it since then. Nobody's come close since then. Well, it was a hundred, like I said, that's, that's, that's over a century hadn't done it. You feel me? Yeah. All right, absolutely, Roy. Well, lately, you, you're still fighting. You're still active. Um, you've been fighting. You got over your fear of going overseas, and you've kind of been accepted by the Russian people. I mean, what is uh, – you've got dual yeah. citizenship now. Yeah, How did all that come about? Mr. Putin, the, one of the nicest people and the best presidents on the planet. Um, you know, it's just, I, love, I love people. Uh, I think we are all brothers and sisters combined. Uh, through God, through the grace of God, uh, through Christ. I feel like we all brothers and sisters, whether we believe in that or whether we believe in Buddhism or Hinduism or we believe in Muslims or whatever we believe in, we still brothers and sisters to, uh, in faith. And all of us know that God is the creator and the master of all things. So as long as we know that, we all should be okay because we all have different ways of getting to God. Uh, I do still believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but some people dispute that and don't believe or have reasons for disputing, which, you know, you can understand everybody will have a way that everybody will interpret things different. So nobody's going to agree to everything the same. However, as long as it all leads us back to God, the one, the holy one, the one who is king of all things, then we're all good. So now, going over there and doing that, meeting Mr. Putin and, you know, becoming a Russian citizen was a great thing for me because it shows you that God is almighty and all-powerful no matter where you go. You know, there's care, respect, love, and care for, and, and try to follow God. And uh, that's the big thing. You, you're, like I said, you're still an active fighter. What what motivates you to keep stepping in the ring after 26 years of, as a professional fighter? Just said that God gave me a gift unlike no other, uh, unlike no other except with the professional, maybe like Muhammad Ali. But I haven't seen anybody else that can get in the ring and get away with the things that me and Ali get away with. So I have a gift that's exceptional, and it's hard to let that gift go. Even Ali... The last few words, when he could, when he could mumble a few words, you understand it. You feel what I was saying. I'm thinking about making a comeback. Every time, always on his mind, it's like, how do we stop? Because we are so gifted, so blessed. It's like, how do we stop? You know, it's like it's, we gotta be almost dead to stop. You know, if our body don't stop, we might not stop. So it's like, how do we stop? We got a trick in us, but don't really allow. It. Look at Bernard. Bernard Capricorn. Look at him. He's still going at 49 years old, 50 years old. You feel me? So it's like, man, how do we stop? Man, it's like it's not like. We're trying to prove that we will be at this age. We know that at this age, we're going to be smart about how we do it. And you take little fights that make the most sense and then I'm more eventful than so fights. But at the same time, we still refuse to just lay down and not, not be nothing because that's where our passion is. So the fact that God gave me that gift makes me continue to want to go on and because I still know that I can display that gift more better than most people can. Anyway, I can display that gift better than 95% of the people walking around on planet Earth today. But you get a lot of, I mean, you, the people that would, would doubt something like that, 
I mean, most of the people don't understand the heart of a champion, the people that you know get in the ring and fight for a living. Most people don't understand what that's like, so it's tough for them to relate to a, a given timeline. They don't realize that the best thing that can, that can happen to a person like us is that we die there. So we die that we be, you die a happy death, you know? Because that's what we do for a living. So if we die not doing that, we would die a happy death. You know, it's it's two totally different sports. And, and sometimes, you know, casual fans have a tough time realizing this, but there's been a lot of chatter over the past few years with boxing and MMA. And lately there's been talk about Mayweather versus, you know, Conor McGregor. But there's also been a lot of chatter about you fighting Anderson Silva. Mm-hmm. Is there anything to that or any possibility of that happening still? It was, it was still always a possibility because he still wants to do it. And I know he's a legend in the UFC. And when he figured, figured out, like, I know that we know, like, we got to at some point, we got to come out of the real ring where we made our name at. We got to make a few events and we got to get on with it and get and be gone. So right now, I mean, you got to think about it. If you did a McGregor, Miller, Jones, Anderson event, that would be one of the biggest events ever in the history of sports, period. You feel me? Because it would be. Four top names, too old, too new, and in two separate sports. And to be honest, you know, I don't see where um, I, I never seen McGregor really, really box good enough to think that he would have a chance with Floyd. But I know that he does have you know enough power to try to you know, knock out Floyd. It'll be kind of anything, and he don't, he shouldn't really have a chance with me. But they do have enough power to they don't have to land and knock out Floyd. So that would be the only thing that'd be difficult for me and Floyd is make sure we don't let them land that one shot. Because in boxing, we know it's going to take one. And those who guys know that, too, they know they outclass that for the skill of boxing goals, yet they are good enough fighters where they can get themselves in and land one shot. And with a person like Anderson, you're going to wonder, will that shot be the one that's got enough, enough, can you get enough uh, must on the job? And the same with, uh, can you get enough on the duty job? Jordan's one of the best defensive fighters ever, so it's going to be very difficult for Connor to get that job. But still, me, I'm going to fight. I'm going to give you out there because I'm going to be fighting. So, Anderson would have a chance to land that shot. He can land it. But, you know, because I ain't going to be running from him. I'm an I'm a offensive fighter. I'm going to be putting my offense out there. Uh, so, you know, it'll be a good situation. It'll be a great event. But I just don't think that the people, the higher ups in the UFC, would ever let something like that happen. But it definitely would be the biggest event in the sport, uh, in both sports right now. Oh, no. They're not going to do anything to let any of their fighters <laughs> be at a disadvantage. No. Not at all. No. Um. Well, Roy, you were you were one of the most decorated fighters to ever fight step in the ring. Do you have any idea about how many title belts you've accrued over these years? <laughs> no, nah, I have no idea. <laughs> Never <come. laughs> I tell you what, though, when I was one, when I was one seventy five pound champ, I won every belt I could get my hands on. I think I had every belt except the WBO, and because I couldn't get Dave McCheskey to come over here to fight me, and if I went over there and took all my belts over there, I may not leave more than with them when the fair shape. I, would, I couldn't go for that because of what happened in his whole career. But if I got all the belts except yours, and you said you the man, shouldn't I make you up for me and get some of my belts? Because you can get them all, you can get them all in one fight. I got to fight you, and you were just one. You were just one of me. I had all the rest of all the rest of them. I had them. All you had to do was call and bring your one, and you could put your one up to get them all, but you didn't. I remember all that chatter, man. Darius mm-hmm. running his mouth, and it, but but you were you were number one. So if you want to exactly. be number one, you got to come fight number one. If you want to beat the man, you want to beat the man. You got to beat the man. But listen, I got at least eight titles. I got every light heavyweight title that's possible of having at the time, except the WBO. You got one. You want me to come put all my eight titles on the line in your backyard for your one? No, that's stupid. Why would I do that? 
Right, exactly. Especially after what happened in Korea. Exactly. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, what kind of fool would I be to come out and put all my patterns on the line for your blood in your backyard? How stupid is that? <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, well if you're offering five million to call him and fight. If you're offering him a side of five million, we'll give you five million to call him and fight. Where's John James? He turned it down. Why? Because he know because because he know he ain't gonna beat me. But over there, he know if he can go to a world, he might get the decision. And right. I'm sure that I can knock him out because I ain't even watching that coach. But I ain't even go there and bet I gotta go. I gotta go knock him out. The best way to get knocked out is knocked out is to go there trying to knock somebody out. And you yourself probably won't get caught. So I won't do that. That's shut up. Where would you rank yourself among the all-time greats? Um. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, the record speaks for itself. How many people, and nobody's ever going to be greater than Muhammad Ali, but how many people have went and taken away from term? How many people have turned a pro as a junior middleweight and became a heavyweight champion of the world? How many people have a dominant era of over 72 pounds? You feel me? How many people, besides Bob September, won middleweight, light heavyweight, Heavyweight title, they went back down and recaptured the light heavyweight title. How many have done it? They ain't hard to figure out. How many have done it? One. The great Shane Robinson tried, he couldn't do it. How many have tried? How many done it? Able one. Able one. And the only person I'm going to put myself behind is the greatest, and that's Muhammad Ali. The rest of them I can't put in front of me. They ain't did nothing to get ahead of me. Undefeated, yeah, I could stay undefeated if I don't fight nobody. They don't mean nothing. Right. I'm with you, Roy. Now you, you've got a dream on the side. You've got a dream job. I mean, as a boxing commentator for HBO, you started doing that years ago when you were still fighting. What are some of the most memorable fights you've covered? Oh, well, this one's good one, man. This is a real good one, but I got to tell you, um, that one, I mean, I don't know. It, it's hard to say because there some Bobanikov fights, some uh, Kenny McKinney Barrero fights, uh, Junior Jones Barrero. I mean, man, it's good they're going to fight that coach. So it's hard to say, and I don't want to leave them by the off because there's so many of them. The list goes on. It's like Pavanikov, Pavanikov, Bradley. I mean, come on, man. It, it's so many good fights that I've covered that it's hard to tell. You know, I just forgot some of the fights, some names of the fights that this one fight. But I know to me, the McKinnon Barrera fight, the Pavanikov, uh, Bradley fight, um, even the fight that weekend with, um, Lopez and, and, and um, uh, to me, man, I mean, come on, man. There's so many no fights I've covered. It's hard to remember what's going on there. Are there any fighters out there right now that kind of remind you of yourself when you you were younger? Yeah. Vasiliy uh, Lomachenko. Yeah. Well, what do, what are your thoughts on uh, Gennady Golovkin? I love like, Gennady. He's, uh, he's a little different than me. He's more like a Mike Tyson type dude. He, he's a middleweight that goes there and gets him out of there. So... And he had a deep amateur background, and I did too, but he's a guy that's a, he's a seeking the store type guy. And he's not as much of a technician as I would, but he's a seeking the store type guy. And like, it's like two times entertainment. You be the Roy Jones, Sugar, and Muhammad Ali, Punya, Wilkins type entertainer, or you be the Mike Tyson, Joe Foreman, the Nanak and Lapkin type entertainer. You know what I'm saying? You can show, you entertain with your showmanship, or you entertain with knockout. He's one of those guys that's superior entertainer with knockout. You know, it seems like right now it doesn't really seem like there's anybody kind of in his, you know, unless he were to move up, that would really give him fits. What would what would be the strategy to beat somebody like that? Well, I mean, it's hard because he's such a head on head on fighter to be a spectacular six for one. 
But uh, I just need to stay track of shit. And that thing that can be done, I'm not going to give away no secrets over this interview. So, so I'm not <laughs> trying to get that beat like that because I love boxing. Hey, hey, what I told y'all? I know we're doing for the sport of boxing, but at the same time, you know, everybody, everybody can be beat. I mean, it's just a matter of taking them out of there and figure out what it takes to do it. So, yeah. Well, what what is next for Roy Jones? I'm not sure yet. You know, still going on, doing a couple of things here and there, doing some promoting, doing some training. Yeah, you never know about Roy Jones. He's always going to be some kind of a test boxer. He's going to be commentating. And I think he's on the fight game with, with Joe Hefner tonight to talk about Muhammad Ali. Uh, it's a great fight game edition tonight on HBO. So if you're up and you get a chance, I think it comes on 1040 uh, uh, Eastern Time. So if you get a chance, make sure you check it out. It's a great uh, show for Muhammad Ali. And you never can't tell about Roy Jones. I'm a lot like he was my idol, so I take a lot up to him, and I'm always thinking about a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any any final words for your fans out there? My final words for my fans are thank you guys for supporting me over the years. Thank you guys for, for being there when I need the support. Uh, I know you guys are concerned. A lot of people are concerned about health issues and all that, but like I tell people all the time, I got 37 years in that I can't back out. And one more year ain't gonna hurt nothing with me. You got thirty-seven years. What's all heading for it? You know. Uh, well, as Roy, man, I'm telling you, man, it, it's an honor to have you on the show. And Thank you know, you you've insp- you've inspired a lot of people, including myself. So I, I wish you nothing but peace, happiness, and continued success, my man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Thanks, Roy. God bless y'all. God bless you too. Thanks for doing it.